Well, another week has whizzed by and it's time for another episode of the podcast. Hope you've had a good week. Hello, I'm Ali Jones. And uh, last week, well, it was pretty productive for Where Did It All Go Right? We recorded some episodes with author Claire McIntosh, uh, voice of the Brits and Formula One broadcaster Holly Samos, who talked a lot about working with Chris Evans. And uh, you can hear that very soon. Oh, and podcast lovers Adam Buxton too. That was recorded under a stage. Mm, I'll explain more about that in a couple of weeks. So this week, we talked to cellist Natalie Klein about where it all went right. The thing is, it all went right for her because she's crazily talented. But, you know, there's there's more to it than that. And we talked about that um, just before she had to disappear off and rehearse for a concert. So enjoy. Natalie, thank you so much for talking to me. It's a pleasure. Before a concert, when I know your head is probably somewhere else slightly it it must be really tricky to sort of get your head into concert mode Mm, I suppose um I'm I'm used to it in in one way I've I've been playing concerts I would could say professionally since I was about 16 years old so you do get used to switching it's a little bit Mm. like um the flick of a switch as soon as I have the cello in my hands all the rest of the internal chatter slows down and calms down and I focus on what's what's there. And that's a gift. It's almost, I sometimes think, also with sort of craziness that might be happening at home, organisationally, family, whatever, um, I'm very lucky to have this sort of quiet centre to my life. It's almost a little bit like a form of meditation or something when I'm with the cello. So, And tell us about your cello. It's mm. a very old, special cello, isn't it? It is. Lots of us, in fact, all the colleagues that I'm playing with tonight in Oxford, we all play instruments built between, I think, about six. 1680 and 1780 I think I'm right to say that my cello is from 1777 made in Italy and I'm incredibly lucky to play it do you remember the first time you played Mm. it I do it was in Vienna and I was looking for a cello I had the chance to be a member of a trust that owns this cello because that's how it works nowadays with these very valuable instruments musicians can't afford to buy them by ourselves none of us can and it was a clever dealer bit like an antique dealer they're they're similar I know the perfect cello for you come and see it and they had just come in from somewhere it immediately suited me I loved it and and yet it took a couple of weeks I would say until it really opened up for me but couldn't part with it (laughs) and and I'm interested in how that compares to the experience of when you do you remember playing your first cello when you were a child because I, I remember when I got my first instrument it was a school cello that got had been bashed you know, yeah. the bridge was like whoa all over the place um <laughs> did you have a, a bought cello or did you borrow one do you remember the first Ooh, one I'm lucky because I come from a family of musicians my dad's an amateur player and my mum a professional violinist so I think I think they bought me some kind of an instrument from the beginning I don't remember the early ones that well I remember when I was about 10 my dad bought an old cello and I called it brownie because it was dark brown and it was nothing special but I remember loving the sound of it yeah and from that time in your life do you think right this is what I want to do I want to perform or did that come later that came at about the age of 10 I started playing concerts about then it's very young though still yeah, to know I, I think it is look yeah. yeah at the time it didn't feel young it felt natural but of course now I look at 10 year olds and and I do think that's young yeah. people say that musicians and doctors know young apparently and my dad's a doctor and my mum's a violinist so I guess I only had two choices and so I went for one (laughs) and that was the one yeah so this podcast is called where did it all go right and I suppose from me on the outside I would say well I guess the big point for you where it went 
particularly right was when mm. you won Young Musician of the Year. For you, would that be the point that you was a massive turning point for you, or were there points before that? Well, it's interesting because because the title, if you say, where did it all go right? My initial thoughts go back much further than that to an attitude of how you work for something and how you combine discipline and love for something. And I think if those ingredients are there, then it will go right eventually, whether it goes right age 16 or 26 or 36. Yeah. You know, so, but yeah, for me, winning the Young Musician of Competition was Young Musician of the Year, the BBC, was definitely a turning point from the point of view of my public profile. Suddenly, millions of people knew about me. And that was quite a shock, actually, for a 16-year-old in many ways. Um, was the age before all this kind of digital media. There was, there was no Facebook, no Twitter, nothing like that. So I used to receive lots of letters in the post and lots of phone calls. And, That's really that, strange, isn't it? it? Is, isn't it? Thinking about it now, <laughs> we're dinosaurs. Yeah, you know? well, I, mean, I sorry, know. Sorry. Yeah, because now um, you say those ingredients mm. that you talk about, that you mm. had that, you know, you really wanted to do it and you had that love. But you mm. must also know people that you have played with in the past who had all those ingredients, but maybe haven't made it as far because... There must be an element of getting out there and something like Young Musician must have mm. given you that global audience. Are there people mm. that you know that toil away but don't maybe get the record deals or get the right management? Ooh, this is a tough question in a tough environment to answer. Mm. Many of the colleagues I play with perhaps don't have as high a profile as me in the UK, but generally speaking around the world, they have the same kind of profile as me and they play as many concerts as me and they also have managers and all of that. It might have taken them a bit longer, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. In the long run, you know, these kind of competitions, they're a little bit like a sort of springboard that enables you to fly, but then you have to keep flying. That's what I wanted to ask yeah. you about, keeping flying. Mm. How do you keep flying? Yeah. Because you could all say, right, I've done that. Mm. I can relax now. It's all mm. going to be fine. But you mm. can almost, if you're not careful, sit back a bit. Mm. And so how do you keep mm. flying? I don't really know many musicians, serious musicians who sit back ever in their <laughs> life. There's a famous, incredible story about one of the iconic cellists of the 20th century, Pablo Casals. And he was practicing away and he was 93. And somebody said, well, maestro, why do you still practice? You're the best cellist on earth. And he said, because finally I think I'm improving. <laughs> and the thing is that to, a, that to a musician, that's so natural, such a natural thing to say. Yeah. And I think that this constant desire for more understanding of the music and the score and a deeper understanding and ability on the instrument that's sort of what drives us forward generally mm. how how much do you play each day now yeah. i'm not going to answer that question <laughs> <laughs> you've got kids i've okay. got kids okay, okay. <laughs> what did i used to do yes, yes i could basically say pre-kids and post-kids <laughs> it's really that simple <laughs> from day one um Again, many of my colleagues who also have children, we say the same thing. When we go away on tour, away from the family, we go to teach or we go to play. That's when we get most of our practice done now. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I try to, I'm, I definitely work every day at home and I get a chunk of hours in mm. in the morning mm. if I can. And, um, Is it like exercise? And much more sometimes. Fun. Yes, it's exactly the same. Yeah. It's more painful because, it, you know, I think if, you, if you're a runner... I don't know exactly. I suppose if you're a high, high-performing Olympic athlete, it's probably quite similar. And I think that we as musicians, I as a musician, I'm a sort of high-performing Olympic athlete, but with my micro muscles, with my fingers, because if I don't play for a day or two days, I immediately feel it. Yeah. So if I take two weeks off, it's an absolute disaster. So do you get, <laughs> never take me. any time off? No, I do, but it's a disaster. <laughs> and I, I do, I have to, I want to. Yeah. Life is too short not to. Playing the cello as well, it's mm. not a small instrument. Mm. It's very physical. So mm. do it you is. find that you have to get in training? I mean, practice mm. training, but do you have to keep yourself physically fit mm. as well? I try to. I think it's 
I always feel much better when I'm physically fit. As you say, I, there is a huge amount of just physical effort, just getting a cello on and off a plane, traveling, the amount of traveling I do does definitely take it out of me physically. I sort of try to tell myself I'm keeping fit by doing all this <laughs> walking in yeah. airports and up and down station stairs. And I don't know. You finished Young Musician of the Year and then you went on to mm. do the European as well. Yeah. And then how does it work? Did you have a manager at that point? And because I've noticed mm. that you've got managers in all mm. parts of the world. I do now. Does that take time? I mean, I had a lot of managers and record companies chasing me the day after I won the competition but I knew very clearly that I needed to keep studying I hadn't yet had the kind of meat and potatoes teaching that I knew I needed to get and actually a friend of mine years later said that part of talent is knowing which teacher you need and where to go and I knew exactly when I found my teacher my beloved teacher in Vienna I knew immediately he was the one that could teach me what I needed to know mm to get me where I needed to get. And until that point, I hadn't got there. And I didn't go to him until I was 18. But that must have taken quite mm. strong character from you. You've got all these people going, hey, look, we, mm. we want you to be with us and we yeah. want you to, to record this. And that's really exciting. And we could do all this with you. You had to be quite strong to say, well, no, actually, I'm going to mm. learn. I suppose I was. I was I was authentic. I can be proud of that. And I was serious and honest to my craft. I wasn't going to sell out. So you did that, so you did the study, and then after that, was that the time when you... I never totally uh, stopped playing concerts, and it was definitely a very challenging time, because I was learning really how to hold my bow again in some ways with my teacher. And at the same time, then two weeks later, I had to play an Elgar concerto with the London Philharmonic or something like that, so that was highly stressful, Mm. and I got through it somehow how, yeah how, like how do you sort of because you're still really mm. young and obviously had support from your mm. parents because mm. being musicians as well they probably got it mm. <laughs> a little bit but how did you keep strong and, and sort of also have time out as well I imagine you yeah. would need a little bit of time just to do other stuff yeah I didn't have much time out at that time that's the truth it certainly wasn't my happiest or easiest time Looking back, I can definitely say that. And I took time out and started to relax only about 10 years later, 10, 15 years later. Sorry to say that, but it's really true. I mean, I'm much more relaxed now. Why why do you think you're more relaxed? Because you're getting older? Or do you think because you've done so much more and you've got more experience? I think that experience counts for a lot. And I genuinely feel now that I've, I've got great knowledge about my craft. I feel confident in everything I've learned and that doesn't mean I've finished learning no way gotta get to 93 I hope so touch wood let's see (laughs) but I do feel I feel very proud of what I've built up now age 40 whereas when I was 16 18 20 I was very aware of what I still had to do I'm I'm interested because you do quite a lot of recording with the different record labels and, Mm. and that whole process how that comes about who you decide to record with, who decides mm. what you're going to play. Is it all down to you or do you take advice as well? Mm. Um, it's a little bit of both. Um, my main recording life takes place with Hyperion Records. and How did that come mm. about? Well, I recorded some things with EMI and then they just wanted to do a couple of sort of bestsellers after that. And again, that didn't, didn't feel right to me. That wasn't my musical world. I was interested to delve into perhaps lesser known work. I think it's very important every time um, you make a recording to ask the question why who needs this and why would I record it and if it's just another version of the same thing that's been recorded brilliantly already 
500 times, is it really worth doing it again? The market is totally oversaturated in that way. Mm. And Hyperion are great at being interested in repertoire that, that fills that gap, actually, that hasn't been recorded before, and they find such interesting people to do it. So it, it suited me so well to be with them. It still does. I love them. And my first record, well, actually, they were the first people I ever recorded with when I was, actually, it was the first recording I ever made when I was 17, just a solo part in the Du Rufle Requiem, if you don't know the piece. It's go gorgeous. And listen, no, you know, I love it. It's yeah, yeah. so beautiful, yeah. isn't it? But um, I came and recorded Kodai, the works of solo Kodai and Kodai with piano. And that was a really successful disc from both sides. That was, the, in a way, I would say the first disc I was truly proud of, mm. for whatever reason. And then we've just gone on from there and recorded a mixture of orchestral stuff and solo stuff, stuff with piano. We have lots of plans. So and, you work mm, together, collaboratively. Totally, yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so far, there haven't been actually many points of disagreement about about what I'd like to record. So as an mm. artist, for you, it's brilliant that you can work with somebody where you're not pulling apart, you're, you're, you're on the same page and doing stuff that really interests you. Because mm. what's really interesting that you love doing, like you say, you don't want to do the old classics all the time, but mm. you've worked with people like Jeanette Winterson yeah. and dancers mm. as well. So do you feel that to keep relevant, you have to sort of do different things and, and to, to get bums mm. on seats? Because a lot of classical music, it's, it's rein, reinventing itself, I think, all the time and more and more people are getting into it. But to make it more relevant for younger audiences. Is mm. that why you try? I think that's partly why I did some of those projects. I think one goes through different phases <laughs> in one's career. And I, I, I'm in a specific phase at the moment which I, where I feel quite concentrated and I can totally see the problem about bringing younger people in. And what do I do? I, I, I sort of go straight to the core of it at the moment. I play, I do a lot of work when I can with schools, with young children. I, at the moment, I live opposite local Finsbury Park School and I go in every Thursday, basically, that I can and play for the kids at lunchtime. So we've built up together with an opera singing mum colleague. That's pretty we, impressive, yeah. isn't it? You know, the <laughs> thing is, it's all they've ever heard. So I think, they, they think when they start, that's, that's how they're going to start. But actually, I'm proud of that because there's no point talking down to kids. There's no point patronising them. And they've lapped up over the last two years everything from Bach to Kodai to Kortak. I mean, way out stuff that perhaps an audience or a promoter would say, oh, no, we can't have that. Mm. It's, our audience won't like it. And the children aged between three and 11 love it. And for me, that's justification. I mean, that, that's proof that our music is without boundaries. The boundaries are built later in life. Prejudices come much later, sadly, sadly. So I do that. I try to make interesting programs, concert programs. Yeah, yeah. I try to include other forms whenever I can. Yes, working with Jeanette was, was so interesting and I hope we'll do something again in the future. And the same goes for dancers. And um, I sometimes mix literature together with, so words and music together, the right the right combinations can work in concert. But um, right now I'm also very interested just in focusing in on my art. Somehow it seems like a meditative way and bring out things that I feel are of my best quality. And also I love teaching a small number of really good students. Yeah, yeah, spreading <laughs> yeah. the word. And it's interesting yeah. you talk about being sort of meditation because that's something that I think life is so frenetic, isn't it? Mm. And, and so busy and, and a lot of people need to step away from their computer screens and... Mm. I think you're onto something there as well, that people coming to a concert is something where you can step away and you can focus on something completely different. Yeah. And by listening to some beautiful cello playing, that's yes. incredibly helpful. It, and your phone can't help you there and your computer won't help you and you yeah. can finally find... What I love about playing a concert is that we always paint on a canvas of silence and silence is very rare mm. nowadays. Um, are there, are there certain that? concerts for you? How many mm. do, you, do you do a year? Oh, gosh. <laughs> 
I don't know. I never really count people asking that. I'm, I'm not sure. Maybe 70, maybe 80, something like that. So the, but over mm. the years, have there been a couple that have really stood out for you and, and sort of pivotal moments where maybe you felt, I've really pushed my pushed my career on a gear here or hmm. can you think of anything oh gosh I don't know it's hard to say yeah I think it's the, the, the slow drip version yeah. <laughs> I really do yes all my recordings have been really well received yeah. and they've won some awards and things like that so that means a lot do you read reviews <sighs> yeah I do I mean I don't actively search them out most of the time but they do help and and you know agents ask for them promoters mm. I think ask for them yeah we're in that kind of a world I wouldn't say mm. I usually only believe the bad stuff, though. So <laughs> I think that's natural, isn't it? I think that's not just me. Yeah. So an, an agent said, so you've got around the world. So mm-hmm. th- that started then with one in the UK, and then yeah. did that spread? Yes, exactly that. And it's, it's helpful to have local agents. They're called, and usually the local agents work together with the general manager. So I have a general manager in the UK, mm-hmm. and then local ones in, yeah, in the States, and in Italy, and in Switzerland, and in South America, and... I think that's all I hope I haven't left someone out with children as well you're trying to squeeze in so they might say can you do this date mm. and you think oh, I really want to do that but that's going to be tough yeah. there must be times when that's quite tricky deciding mm. whether to do something I think that this is something I've learned from successful colleagues is the art and I'm sure you've heard this before the art of saying no mm. just because you can say yes doesn't always mean you should it's to understand yourself and another friend of mine said there always have to be two good reasons to do something <laughs> So that's a pretty good, yeah, yeah. <laughs> a pretty good philosophy to live by. And, and you were talking about how now they've got the internet. So you know, before you had young musician, that really gave you that global audience. Mm. But for young musicians starting out, mm. obviously they've got to be talented and mm. they've got to be good. Mm. But can that really help get their music out there? Do you think? Seeing because you you teach a lot of students, mm. so yeah. what do you say to them to sort of get out there and and get known? I say get out there and get known by playing with colleagues by getting out there in the real world the funny thing is that perhaps this is just me but I have a slight prejudice (laughs) against some people who are tweeting and facebooking all day because I think why aren't you practicing (laughs) why aren't you rehearsing why aren't you doing any work why aren't you doing a concert (laughs) and the thing that I I think there's there can be too much of a good thing there Um, I think you're right yeah Yeah. I think the people you have to stay very focused in a real way as Mm. a musician and I do believe that the good ones rise to the top and it takes time sometimes it takes a long time but you just have to keep chiseling away at the mm. sculpture. And colleagues are the best form of help to a life and a long life in music. I mean, I'm playing with colleagues tonight, for example, and some of them I played with for the first time 15, nearly 20 years ago. And, yeah. you know, and so they're, they're all at the top of their game. And close-knit community. Yes, it is like mm. that. Mm. And that's also exciting and of course there are new people coming in all the time as well mm. at the bottom and that's also the one of the wonderful things about music because a 20 year old a 40 year old and an 80 year old can play together and we're all discussing the same things and absolutely living in an equal way through music when you were like you say chiseling away at your statue mm. yeah <laughs> did you ever sort of think at any time when, when maybe you were just practicing and you know, sometimes you have a piece I imagine and it's just like mm. not quite going mm. right did you ever think I'm, I might take a break or I might because it seems to me you would never ever give up because it's something mm. that's music is, is just you would never ever do anything else mm. is that right I think that's right uh, yeah, yeah. I, I I just feel incredibly lucky and it's a gift of life to have this in my life so no I can't imagine giving up but taking a breather ever would you sort of how long do you mean I by don't breather? know <laughs> if you say three weeks and I say yes please yes. all the time yeah but three years no no you, you've just got to keep playing haven't you you've got to as I say it's partly the athletic form yeah. that would get so 
destroyed <laughs> from such a long time away from the instrument. Yeah. I'm sure I could find things to do. I think if as long as I had music in my life. But on the other hand, I adore the, the sensual, visceral act of playing the cello. Just the, the feeling of the strings under my hand and the breathing with my arm and all of that. It's such a joy. And the sound, which is your sound, which just comes from inside you. Mm. So... I think I'd always yearn to to be behind a cello. <laughs> and what's interesting with you, you play as a solo artist, but also you do a lot of chamber music mm. as well. And you have to be quite a, a team player to be a musician, don't you, as mm. well? And I guess that would be your advice to other people who are trying to get into a musical career, that you've got to listen mm. to other people. <laughs> you do. And you learn to listen young. And that's another beauty of teaching music to young children, mm. because it's an art of listening. You can't respond before you've listened. And so often we just hear lots and lots of responding, responding, responding. And this goes for all areas of life at the moment, doesn't it? We don't have to look too far for that. With not real listening going on. Yeah. And that doesn't work as a musician. It just doesn't work. You don't get anywhere like that. So here at the university, you're artist in residence. Mm. So what does that actually entail then? Uh, It's been a wonderful thing to be involved in because basically I just get to curate interesting concerts in what some of the most beautiful venues I know anywhere in the world, actually. The Hollywell, we did something at the um, the, the Natural History Museum a few months ago, which was beautiful. Amongst the, the dinosaurs. Sh- it was incredible. Uh, Sheldonian, the Faculty of Music. It's been a real joy to have that blank canvas and just mm. to say, let's let's have a celebration of Bach now. Let's, let's have a Holocaust Memorial concert. Let's introduce these wonderful artists to come and play in Oxford. Mm. So, yeah. And for you... I'm sure there's so much more that you want to do. What's sort mm. of on your wish list for, for, the, for the next couple of years? Mm. Any pieces of, of music? I mean, working with, with new mm. composers, that's, yes. that's a lot, something you're really passionate about, it isn't is, it? It is, it yeah. is. I'm working with quite a few. I'm just about to go off now to Australia and work with, with a young Australian composer there. And then, yes, I've got a yeah, handful of very treasured composers that I work regularly with. Mm-hmm. And... It's just sort of more of the same, really. There's a couple of concertos I want to learn that I've never learned, and I hope I'll get a chance to play those. And, yeah, chamber music. I'm artistic director of Purbeck Chamber Music Festival, and so I'm always thinking up crazy ideas and people to bring there. And just been invited to to guest guest direct a festival in Denmark for 2020, so I'm already thinking about that. Oh, goodness. Yeah. And Lots of creativity. It just goes on like that, yeah. yeah. And in terms yeah. of other people that you'd like to work with, not, say, mm. composers, you know, we've talked about working with Jeanette and, and dance mm. as well. Mm. Are there other genres that you'd like to, to leap into as well? I think probably watch this space <laughs> at the moment. You're always thinking about I'm it. I'm always though. thinking about it. Yeah. And if the opportunity came up, I would know when it was right. Let's say like that. And, and if your children say, Mum, we'd like to uh, do this for a living, what would you mm. say to them? Would I you... would embrace it. I definitely would. I would tell them you have to work hard. Mm. And hopefully they could see... I hope they would look at me and see that as an example of how you need to work because I do practice at home. <laughs> but I would say it's a life filled with fascinating, you live with fascinating works of art. That's the score, that's the music. And then you travel a lot. You meet lots of colleagues from all around the world. You discover cultures in a different way. You're invited into a culture. That's one of the really great things about being a musician. You're invited already into sort of like the inner circle of a culture. You're never there as a tourist. Mm. And I really value that. So I would, I would say work hard and then embrace it. It's not an easy life. You don't have weekends. There's <laughs> no such thing as a weekend, no. there's no Saturday. Yeah. But I think, you know, if you're passionate about it and you love it so much, you could mm. never do anything else, could you? No, no. I don't think so. No. 
I should have done some more practice, you see, now. It sounds like I'm very jealous. (laughs) Well, I actually think that that there's a great joy to be had from amateur playing. There really is. I mean, you know, the word amateur comes from amare, to love. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think Mm. as long as you keep the love of the instrument, then it's really worth keeping it it up in some amateur way, you know. Thank you so much for talking to me. It's uh, really fascinating to hear this sort of, don't want to use the word journey, (laughs) but, uh, you know, because you've been in this industry a long time. Yeah. And, you know, all the twists and turns. So it's fascinating. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Nice to talk to you. Thanks to Natalie and thank you, Megan, for some brilliant production again this week. Don't forget to rate, subscribe on iTunes and Podbean and download. Uh, Oh, there are past episodes with writers, presenters, producers. Well, it's all there for you to enjoy. You can follow us on Twitter at WhereGoWrite. And thank you for listening. See you next week.